Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today's episode demystifies how artificial intelligence and machine learning can be used to solve common business challenges and open the door to opportunities that often exceed expectations. We will also present some compelling case studies from traditional businesses and startups, as well as some of the AI giants. Our guest is a best-selling author and AI expert and offers detailed examinations of over 50 companies that have successfully integrated AI into their business practices. Artificial intelligence and machine learning are the most modern business trends that are driving today's and tomorrow's successes. By adopting AI technology, any business, no matter what size, sector or industry, can advance innovative solutions to their most demanding challenges. We welcome author of Artificial Intelligence in Practice, How 50 Successful Companies Used AI and Machine Learning to Solve Problems. Bernard Marr, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Aidan. I'm so happy to be on the Innovation Show. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, so let's jump straight into it, Bernard. I thought we would start by bringing everybody up to speed with some simple definitions. It's what I really liked about the book. You make it interesting for those who are very knowledgeable about AI, but also accessible for the AI novice. Before we run through some terminology, let's explain why we have such an opportunity with AI today, because we have this massive explosion of data. I talk about this intelligence revolution that we are experiencing, and I believe intelligence and data is basically at the foundation of this fourth industrial revolution that we are in at the moment. We have had never any more data than we have now. Basically, 90% of all the data that exists in the world was generated in the last two years or so. We currently have immense volumes as a number. This is about 10 zettabytes. But for me, what makes it even more crazy is that those 10 will grow to 175 zettabytes in the next five years or so. What we're seeing is we have enormous amounts of volumes of data and they're growing at an unprecedented rate. And like you say in the book, we've always had data albeit not so much. Why can we use this data now, today, more than ever before? Partly because of a few different things. So one thing is that we now have more powerful computers and we have new algorithms. So in the past, we could store data and the more data we stored on a, in a single database, the slower it became and the more cumbersome and then the more computing power required to actually use it. Basically, nowadays we have what we call cloud computing that allows us to store unlimited amounts of data. It's a bit like when you take a photograph on your smartphone and this gets stored on the cloud. The same companies can now do in much, much bigger volumes so they can store hundreds of petabytes of data if they wanted to. And they can now use the same cloud computing what we call distributed computing, where you basically analyze all of this data in nearly real time using lots of different computers in parallel all across the world. This is basically, if you now say, hey Siri, where's the nearest Starbucks? This is then recorded data sent to the cloud at Apple, analyzed, they then trigger a search, give you an answer back and potentially guide you to the nearest Starbucks. And all of this involves over 100,000 computers across the world and takes a split second. So this is just one example of what is now possible using this data effectively. The other thing you mentioned in the book is that we've had AI for over half a century, but things have changed in AI itself now. So we're seeing, we talked in the past about an AI winter, but we're certainly in an AI spring. So what's changed in the world of AI as well as this opportunity with so much data available? AI is 50 years old, more or less. And in the beginning, there were a few different avenues people said we, we could use AI for. So one is basically creating expert systems. And we've had this for nearly 50 years, where you basically program uh, a computer algorithm, a formula, a where you basically say, take this data, put this into this calculation, and spit out an answer. So this guided approach where we create rules has been in existence for a very long time. The challenge is that 
there are lots of things we can't easily create rules for. So if you think about some of the more intangible things, some of the more complex things that we as humans are able to do, but we can't actually explain how we do them. So I can create a rule to say, this is how you make a judgment on someone's financial track record. You take all of their past behaviors, you take those points into account, and then you weigh them, and then you come up with a, with a credit score, for example. This is easy. What is not so easy is if you said, how do you recognize someone on a photograph? Or how are you able to walk? Or how are you able to swim? These are what we call tacit knowledge. And we basically don't even understand the rules that our brain uses to do this because we have acquired those through experience. So if I'm a toddler, I now learn to walk. All of this is via trial and error. And nowadays, I can't explain how I do this in the same way that I can't really explain how I speak. I can't really explain how I do lots of different things, how I speak language, for example. And this is why these rule-based systems had huge limitations. They could do simple things, but they couldn't recognize someone on a photograph because we don't understand the rules ourselves. And they couldn't translate between English and Chinese very well because there are so many complexities to these rules that we can't actually put them into an algorithm. So another type of AI is instead of having those rules, we are saying, okay, why don't we give the AI data and let the algorithm learn by itself, a little bit like how we learn through experience. And the idea was that they're almost replicating this network of neurons that we have in our brain. Our brain has trillions of neurons that are all interconnected. And when we learn something, those neurons are building connections. So if, for example, I learn to walk, I take a step and then my brain learns which step and which muscle functions helped me to, to stay on my feet and which ones didn't. And then over time, those connections get stronger. And nowadays, I just do this without even thinking. And the idea was, hey, why don't we just give these algorithms all the data? The challenge was in the past that we didn't have the data or we didn't have the computing power. Nowadays, we have all this data and we have the computing power. And this is why these modern types of AIs that are basically replicating these neurons in our brain, we now talk about artificial neural networks. So we are replicating those in a computer program. We feed the computer program with lots of data. Let's say I want the computer program to learn how to recognize a cat in a photograph. So I would give it millions of photographs. And luckily on the internet, we have <laughs> lots of photographs of cats and we simply give it to the computer. And then the computer basically, or the algorithm will figure out itself how to recognize and if you were to write an algorithm for this, I couldn't do this because you think, is it is a cat, what color? Is it brown? Is it white? Is it black? Is it anything in between? Has it got pointy ears? And you think the cat is now twisted backwards with a tail between its legs. And suddenly you can only see one eye. You can't see any of the pointy ears. And actually it's impossible. But our brain is really able to do this. We look at any photograph of any cat in any position and we're able to recognize it. So by feeding this algorithm, these millions of photographs of different cats, it can then, similarly to how we learn, learn to figure out what a cat looks like. And this is what we now call machine learning and deep learning, where we have these deep neural networks that are able to learn by themselves from data. Then to give a couple more definitions would be great. And then we'll launch into talking about some of the trailblazers in AI, infusing it into their business models. Really what I'm sensing is it's like this Goldilocks effect of computer processing power is at all times highest speed because of Moore's law. Then there's data availability is another thing, cloud computing is another thing. And that perfect Goldilocks effect of elements is why we have this huge growth and great opportunities for you and this great book as well. But I thought a couple of other definitions would be useful before we launch into some of the trailblazers. So you mentioned machine learning and deep learning and pretty much reinforcement learning. But one of the terms that often people struggle with is natural language processing and then mach machine vision. So maybe we take both of those, Bernard. I talked about some of the others. Natural language processing is basically the ability of 
a computer to understand and reproduce our language. So we now have computers that are able to read and write and hear and speak. And this is basically natural language processing and natural language generation. So in the past, this was completely impossible. Now via deep neural networks, they are able to do this. So I can give, oh, Facebook has developed something called DeepFace that uses deep neural networks to understand what our posts on Facebook are saying. So they understand the content, but they can also go beyond this. They're now looking at the sentiment of the content. And we now have artificial intelligence tools that can read and therefore understand context, understand sentiment, and they can go off and, and research for us. So I can give a tool a question saying, okay, give me an answer to how we freeze water and that this would go off on the internet, find the information and summarize it for us. So there's ability to write. I have a regular column in Forbes. What lots of people don't know is that artificial intelligence tools also write for Forbes. So lots of the analyst articles, when companies release their quarterly figures, they are now automated and machine written. And I can't tell a difference between an article written by a machine and those written by journalists. And then obviously we are very familiar with, I talked about the Siri example earlier, but we now have Alexas and Google Homes in our houses. These machines can, their ability to understand us is getting better by the minute and they can now speak back to us. We've seen recently a great example from Google Duplex that is able to now make calls on our behalf. So Google can, you basically say, make an appointment in this restaurant for me or make a, a hairdresser appointment. And then Google's assistant will ring on your behalf. And it sounds so real that the person on the other end can't even tell that this is not a real person ringing. And it will then match this up with your calendar and then make an appointment for you. The other really cool example I've recently seen is by a Chinese company called Baidu. They now have this ability to clone your voice. So someone can listen to this, this podcast or they can listen to your voice. And just by listening to it for, for a few seconds, they can then clone your voice. And this search engine in, in China can now read a book so they can theoretically read my book in my voice. So someone who doesn't want to read it but wants to listen to it can simply click on a link and then listen to the book in my voice, reading it to them, which is pretty cool. You're going to blow our cover here, Bernard. <laughs> this is an AI show. For the love of God, man, you're giving us away. They're <laughs> just robots talking to each other. Yeah. So you, that's fantastic. So I think we're up to speed with some of the definitions. You then call out, before we go into some of the companies, you call out three main opportunities for businesses with AI. I would love if you shared this because let's give a general opportunity for businesses out there and then we'll show how some of the companies in the world are using them today. Okay, so I work with organizations helping them to understand what artificial intelligence and the latest technology trends mean for them. And we're then creating a transformation strategy or an AI strategy or data strategy for their organization. And what I see in practice is that lots of organizations get lost in all of this. They see, okay, everyone is talking about AI now. There's some amazing breakthroughs. And what we need to do is we need to simply start using artificial intelligence. And for me, this is the wrong approach. What I believe companies need to do is they need to approach this a bit more strategically. And for me, it has to start with your business strategy. You need to identify what do we actually want to achieve. And then when you look at this strategically, for me, there are two or three key angles. One is around customers, where you say, okay, we can use AI to better understand our customers and what they do. And if we do this well, we can then use this understanding to produce or offer them smarter products and smarter services using AI to deliver a, a much better customer value proposition to them. And the third one is where we use AI to optimize our own processes and potentially automate our businesses and streamline and, and drive internal efficiencies and effectiveness. You call it Google as a great example of firstly understanding the issues and the business problems that they have and then 
looking at how AI can help those things. I really felt there was an analogy here between what happened when the app store opened. You had all these businesses clamoring to build an app, but they never asked why and for what reason. What would it serve to the customer or what it would serve to the business? And you really say that's the place to start. First, you need a business strategy and then you need a data strategy. And then you look at your AI strategy. Absolutely. And in, in many cases, when I work with companies, what we realize is, or what they realize is that their current strategy is not quite right for this new fourth industrial revolution. And they need to rethink what they're offering to their customers, how they're offering it to their customers, and then they can rethink their internal processes too. So you don't want to apply AI to an outdated business model. And you want to make sure that your artificial intelligence applications are actually driven by real business needs. For me, it's all well and good having data and AI, but in the end, they're just enablers that are helping to do the things that you want to do as a business, deliver great products and services to your customers. And, and this is where it has to start. Okay, so let's jump into some of the 50 companies that you mentioned here, the trailblazers you start with in the book. And let's start with a business that boasts a market cap of over half, over 500 billion US dollars and global sales bigger than Amazon and eBay combined. Many people don't know that this is how big Alibaba is. Yeah, Alibaba is an amazing company, hugely successful, based in China. And what they are doing is they've completely embraced AI. So everything they do now nowadays is driven by artificial intelligence. So they have a a huge shopping platform where they use similar things that you would expect companies like Amazon doing. They're, they're understanding what their customers want. They use this to predict what you might want to buy in the future. Um, both companies like Alibaba and Amazon are now getting so confident that they understand their customers so well that they are starting to ship things towards you before you've even made a conscious decision to buy something. Um, the other thing is that they they want to offer AI to some of the, the, the vendors that they are featuring on their website. For example, one of the things they're now doing is that they have automated the product descriptions. So this is now instead of a person writing up a description of a product for sale on the Alibaba side, this is now this can now be done by by robots that will optimize this for keywords and potentially even in the future customize this for particular people. So they know what you're looking for, that you're buying this microphone for the podcast rather than for recording music videos. And therefore, they will optimize this product description for your predicted needs. The other thing they're doing is they're offering this to, to other organizations. So they're offering um, companies what I call artificial intelligence as a service. So if you are a small retailer in China or a small mom and pop shop somewhere in China, you can go to Alibaba and they have these these digitization packages that they come in and they give you the AI abilities, they give you prediction capabilities, and even in their physical stores, they do that. They can kit out stores with the digital equipment to help you drive or use AI in, in your day-to-day -day businesses. And then they're working very closely with the, the Chinese government to um, work on things like smart cities and, and other initiatives. So that they are an, an amazing trailblazer when it comes to AI. A company that has really embraced AI from top to bottom. Yeah, and one of the things I thought was really interesting and it only really dawned on me through reading your book was one of the reasons China is such a trailblazer and so advanced in AI is because it has such an access to data. So with 800 million internet users, that's a lot of data. This helps us understand why businesses want our data so much. So why access to data when it appears that we're getting the service for free, but we're actually paying with our data is so valuable to the company because we're actually given the AI and machine learning an opportunity to play with that data in order to learn. And in that context, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned Alibaba built a virtual Taobao to train learning algorithms outside the main business in order for them to be up to speed. When they were ready, then they integrated into the main business. Absolutely. Data is the, the vital ingredient for 
good artificial intelligence. So the more data you have, the better your algorithms generally become. Um, and countries like China have created AI strategies that are so ambitious where the government is putting lots of money behind this and where they have companies with an amazing reach, millions of, of users and very little data privacy concerns. So this is this perfect scenario for, for Chinese businesses to thrive in this AI world. Um, businesses here in Europe and the US are, are, are more constrained because we haven't got the same um, government support behind us and we have more data privacy laws that, that prevent companies from capturing some of this data. And one of the other things you mentioned was Alibaba using AI-powered chatbots to great effect. And I'm going to probably butcher this, but it's Diane Xiaomi, which answers 350 million customer inquiries per day. And I thought that was interesting because it just shows how we can be so replaced by AI with tasks that are quite repeatable, quite rote tasks that are very task-driven rather than holistically task-driven. And it's interesting that when you talk about chatbots, so in the past, they were quite robotic sounding chatbots. Nowadays, they're getting better and better. They are now injecting chatbots with personality, with new voices. So you can imagine in, in the future where you have your, your Alexa at home and you say, OK, I want my Alexa to sound like my favorite actor. I wanted to have this voice, uh, this accent and this sort of personality. And this is interesting, this technology is evolving so fast that you can now even have digital human beings. Um, I, I was recently at a launch event for a, a digital uh, musician. So this is a character called Yona. And the whole idea is that at the moment, if you are a musician, music trends move on pretty rapidly and change all the time. So it's quite hard to stay current. And then the, the whole world around it, social media, being on Instagram 24 hours a day is quite demanding. And then people expect you to be in videos and have amazing dance routines. And what this digital being now does is it basically combines all the great innovations around artificial intelligence to monitor what music we particularly like at the moment. And, and it will then compose new bits of music it will then use its artificial voice to sing so and perform those music pieces. It will make sure that they always are current and it will um, create a dance routine and a video for this digitally. And it will also live on Instagram and, and YouTube and other channels. And for me, this is the pinnacle and quite a, a scary situation where you think, okay, we now have an artificial human being that looks nice, that can understand all the latest music trends. It can then compose music by itself. It can then sing and perform this and be on social media 24 hours a day. There's quite a bit of competition to, to rock stars. <laughs> yeah, and one of the other competitions is you talk about creativity there. And you mentioned earlier on about Alibaba using natural language processing to great effect. But I thought it was really interesting when they're writing copy for ads, they have natural language processing at such a great advanced stage that it can write 20,000 lines of copy per second. And this brings the idea of A, B, C, D, E, F, G testing to a whole new level because before when something's not selling, we go, oh, you know what, we need to change the copy or change the photograph. But when this is being monitored 24-7, 365, it means the effectiveness of advertising is much higher. Absolutely. And companies are now using this intelligence in, in real time. Um, I've recently done a, a video for my YouTube channel on Netflix and how they're now using AI. And what they are doing is they are now even trying to customize the tiles that they give us to recommend recommend us a film. So for example, if based on your history, they know that you really like Robert De Niro as, uh, as a character in a film, and they think that they might want to recommend another Robert De Niro film, but actually Robert De Niro only plays a minor role and he isn't on the, on the cover for this film. What Netflix can now do is it, it 
based on the understanding of, of what you like to see, it might show you a scene from this film with Robert De Niro in it, which makes it hopefully more enticing for you to click on it. Bernard, one of the things you mentioned a second ago when you were talking about Alibaba was A, they're working with the government, the Chinese government, and B, the cultural aspect of the lack of concern about privacy in China. And this raises a whole concern about privacy and governmental use of AI as a control mechanism, which is very much a reality. It's a huge concern and is it's a dilemma for lots of, of, of organizations and countries and governments, because the more data we have, the better our AI algorithms become and the more successful businesses become. The challenge is that we don't necessarily, people don't feel comfortable giving all of their data to commercial organizations. We're getting great services in return. So if you use Google, for example, I, I might use Google Maps and say, okay, I want to find the next coffee shop. What you're doing is you're sharing information with Google about where you are, uh, what time of the day it is, and that you're now in, in search of a coffee shop. And this is a lot of personal information that we're sharing. And the challenge is how do we find a way of using all of this data without necessarily sharing some of the private information or giving people some more control over this. And I feel at the moment there isn't enough discussion about all of this. In my talks and seminars, I explain to people how much Facebook, for example, knows about you. So Facebook knows with almost 100% accuracy what your level of intelligence is what your religion is, what your sexual orientation is. They can now predict whether your parents are still married or not. They can even predict two weeks before you change your status from single to in a relationship with immense accuracy. So you think this is crazy. This is just a little platform that we are sharing information with friends, but we have to be aware that someone is listening to those conversations, is analyzing it, is analyzing our photos, is analyzing our text, not only for content, but for sentiment and everything else. Um, if we run a Facebook app on our phone, it also means that Facebook knows where we are. So if people ever wondered how this happened, that they wake up on a Sunday morning after they've spent uh, the Saturday night at a dinner party with some friends, that they now have a friend recommendation for those people that they were sitting around the, the dinner table with. This is because Facebook knows that you were there, that they were there, and that you spend the evening together. Just on Facebook owning WhatsApp, you mentioned this in the book, that they can read your texts between different people. It's AI reading the text. And this is why then you will be offered an ad based on something. For example, if I say, I'm thinking of selling my bicycle, natural language processing will understand that and then create an ad in real time and offer it to me to go, if you're thinking of selling your bicycle, just enter a picture here and enter your price and we'll publish that for you on Facebook. I thought that was fascinating view of the future. Absolutely. And this is the entire business model of Facebook. They through various platforms that they own, be it WhatsApp or Instagram or Facebook, they are trying to understand you and sell you things. So on the one hand side, we need this. What I feel companies like, like Google and Facebook have maybe not been as open and transparent as I would have liked them to be, um, because most people don't know it. We are now hiding all of this in these really long privacy agreements that we are signing. and. There's been some some research that most people don't look at them. Even if we if we are opening these agreements, the average time people spend looking at them is less than 10 seconds. And they're usually uh, seven, eight, nine pages long. So we have absolutely no way of, of reading, let alone understanding them. So we're all signing our lives away to some extent at the moment and, and not really challenging some of these businesses. Spotify, when they released their app and we happily downloaded this to our smartphones, we gave them access to our photographs, to our GPS, to our text, to everything on our phone. And then they actually apologized for this and, and changed some of those settings. But people are happily signing up for all these free services but in exchange for their personal data. So what I believe we need to do is we need to create a little bit more awareness in people. So before you, you sign up for anything, 
and and we need some we need better regulation around this and this is this is happening we now have gdpr in in europe that means that anyone that lives in the european union is protected it means that any company that collects your data needs explicit consent for what they're collecting and they must give you clear understanding of how they're going to use this data so in the past google could collect any data about you and then use it in any way possible nowadays they need consent for all of this yeah and as you say though because of those big data privacy agreements they're Absolutely. impossible this is this is the challenge in china we basically have none of this and and people seem to have be, be even less worried about their their privacy so they're very happy joining all of these these services and giving data away and and the chinese government is very happy to to let this all happen we need to build an AI to read those privacy statements and go, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> and, and these exist. I mean, I, I work with a, a law firm that is currently developing an AI to, to read contracts and identify clauses that you might need to look at in, in more detail and don't want to sign. And these tools need to become available. But unfortunately, regulators are usually lagging behind the fast-moving, innovative companies that want to make money. One of the things there you mentioned earlier on was, say, for example, that the AI that can clone your voice. And I was thinking about that. And then I was thinking about national language processing and how it can create 20,000 lines in a second. And how in our world of uncertainty, for example, I have an ailment or I have a symptom of a sickness and I Google it. Worst thing I can do because I can find any range of a spectrum from I'm about to die to you have a cold or you have a slight allergy to nuts, whatever it might be. But in that world where we're uncertain and we find both sides of the story every single time, the way to make somebody even more confused is to add fake news to that bucket of information. And this is one of the things we're seeing with deep fakes, for example. If I can create a video that can mimic one of the world leaders speaking and then change what they're saying and use their voice, that's a dangerous thing in the world. Absolutely. And we've already seen this. We have seen the U.S. Speaker of the House. There was a deep fake created of her looking drunk. And actually, President Trump tweeted this, believing it was a real video of her. And there are lots of videos of, of Trump and Barack Obama and, and, and Mark Zuckerberg and others uh, being deep faked. I have a real concern about all of this. And this doesn't just go for politicians and famous people, it now applies to almost anyone. There was an app recently developed that basically you take a snapshot of someone that you see somewhere on the bus or outside walking around, and then it would use artificial intelligence and machine learning to create a nude version of that person. And I think deep fakes in particular have really exploded on the internet. And over 90% of them are related to porn. So you can now take a snapshot or a short video of someone and superimpose their head onto a porn scene, for example. I have serious concerns about all of this. Yeah, especially in the world where children are living online. And then on top of that, there's a lot of online bullying going on. And then, then you add something like this to the mix. The problem is that it's so accessible to people. The access to this for any age of child is, is quite easy. Companies sometimes think that, okay, I, I want to use some personal data of people to deliver a great service to them, but I also want to develop some trust with them and I don't want to exploit their data and I don't want to expose their data to someone. And we've heard this where Amazon and companies like, like Microsoft and, and Google got into trouble when they realized that actually when you say something to your Alexa at home, Sometimes this information is listened to by people working for or even contractors for Amazon to help train their computer algorithms. So this is something you think, okay, if I share some worries that I have, depression, medical information with them, this is not really something I want some random person to listen to, let alone a company listening to this and then exploiting this information. What you can now do is there are now tools that help you improve all of this. So one is a new type of encryption. 
So they are now something called homomorphic encryption. And what this basically allows you to do is to store the data somewhere. So if we go back to the example of Google and I'm asking where's the nearest coffee shop, this data can be completely encrypted where Google algorithm can analyze this data, but not access any of my personal information and then provide me a service that again is provided in an encrypted way so Google doesn't even know what it recommended to me, but it all works. We have this technology available today. And I think if we are able to educate people a little bit more about what sort of services they want and how easy it is to exploit and capture some of their private data. And so actually, if I had the choice, if I could use a search engine that would use homomorphic encryption or any other type of encryption that, that protects my private data and doesn't exploit it and sell it to third parties, I would much rather use them and I would probably even pay for this. So for me, the business models that will be successful in the long run will be the ones that actually build this consumer trust. And I feel that companies like Google and Facebook have a real challenge around this because consumers become more aware of, of some of the practices and they lose trust in some of those organizations. I was thinking about this again, reading your book. What's lovely is you have 50 companies and you explain how they all use it to match challenges and then how they will build on AI in the future. And one of the companies was Mattel. And I wrote about this before that their Hello Barbie product, for example, is a doll you speak to. And the doll then uses national language processing and AI and advanced analytics to understand what the child is saying. But it needs to store that in order to communicate with the child in the future and understand what the child's favorite show is or what they eat, etc. Park in that for a second and then thinking back to what you said about how much Facebook, for example, knows about us and how much they can predict about us. If a child is sharing their most prized secrets with a doll and then that's being stored somewhere, that's really valuable, but also dangerous content to be storing on a child. Because psychologically, then you can influence that child in the future. I have concerns on so many different levels. If you're talking to children as well, they definitely have a lesser understanding of the fact that this data is being recorded and analyzed. They are much more naive. They're talking to a toy. And then suddenly it puts quite a lot of pressure on companies like, like Mattel as well. What happens if this child happens to share with its toy that it is being abused or that it is being bullied? What do you then do? How do you react? So uh, this is, again, something that, that companies sometimes underestimate, the liability that comes with collecting data, too. Yeah, and it's the unforeseen consequence of progress. I thought it was worth mentioning as well with Facebook. They have essentially become a publishing company, and they don't want to admit that because by admitting that, then you need to have filtering content in place. But you mentioned while AI can be a problem, say, for fake news and deepfakes, etc., it can also be part of the solution and can help filter and moderate content. Absolutely. And they're using AI for exactly those purposes. So currently, Facebook is using this for Facebook and Instagram, but they're now using machine learning algorithms that will automatically flag up things like cyberbullying, and they will flag up within a few seconds, things like revenge porn posts. So this is all amazing stuff. And I was at an IBM event yesterday, and I was talking to the people that created the Project Debater. I don't know whether you've heard of that. Yeah, I read it in your book, yeah. Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite examples of how AI can now be used and how far it has come. Basically, the, the, the project was to develop an artificial debating tool that would stand up and debate against human, against professional human debaters. So you would give the debaters and the AI a question or a topic to debate for example, is, is AI good for society? Should we subsidize university placements? Whatever it might be. And what then happens is that then the, the human debaters would go away, do their research, construct their arguments, but the AI would do exactly the same, completely autonomously scan the internet, identify trustworthy sources, and then construct arguments for and against, and then 
make its case arguing either for or against this. This for me is amazing. I was talking to one of the researchers of the project debater yesterday. And actually what this enables potentially companies to do is to inject some critical thinking into their processes. So there was a town in Switzerland that wanted to understand whether they should focus on self-driving car technology in their, in their city. And what they did is they basically invited lots of people in to do interviews and to submit their arguments. And what the Project Debater tool then did is basically analyze all of these responses and then argued its case based on what people were saying. So you can now see that any CEO who wanted to get a sense of what people think about their business, about their brands, if you want to do an employee survey, if you want to do some sort of research, you can now do this at a massive scale in a very scientific way and also in a critical way where you balance the pros and cons. And this for me is advancing us as a species immensely if we can actually use AI for these kind of things. Yeah, and I love this idea of using intelligent systems to augment human skills and not just replace them. And I thought that you called it argument mining, the IBM, the debater project, argument mining. I thought, And I thought it was a really interesting thing. I lecture in Trinity College and I lecture to master students and I told them about a tool called EssayBot. So with EssayBot you type in the title of what you want to write and it will write an essay for you. But I, I told them this going, I will know if you've reused it, right? But use it in a way to find information that you would not have otherwise found. And same type of idea that it, it looks for sources that you wouldn't even think to look for. And it reminded me of, I don't know if you know, there's an artist, he's a brilliant artist called Olafur Arnolds. And he's a pianist and he does this beautiful act where he uses, he's created an algorithm that when he plays a note, he has two other pianos and they will pick up on what he's played and play an unforeseen, unpredicted note that a human wouldn't normally play. Because he said, when you're trained in piano, you're trained to go, well, that note goes well with this note and this is how you build a song. But the algorithm does the exact opposite. And he said the beauty of the music is the AI will bring him in a direction he would not have otherwise thought. And I thought that's a lovely analogy for how we should use AI. And I have recently talked about a, a project where a dance choreographer, Wayne McGregor, one of the most innovative choreographers in, 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 in dance, is using artificial intelligence to help him and his team produce new or create new dance routines. And what they're doing is there is, is this this core creativity, which I think is 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 another fascinating area where we can now use machine intelligence to help us humans become more creative. We've seen this in engineering for some time now, that I can give an engineering tool uh, some idea saying I want to create a chair with these dimensions and these characteristics, and then the machine will go off and and design hundreds of different designs and I can then choose the one that I might like. And it would, it, again, as you said before, it's not constrained by our human mind and our training. It, it can design any, any shape or any form. And with Wayne McGregor, he now uses this in his studio where basically the, you basically scan some of the human dancers and how they're dancing in, in their particular styles. But then the machine will know what is humanly possible. And then they can suggest another move that this person might want to make next. And you can try and you basically working alongside and with this AI to create more innovative dance routines. And and I see something similar similarly happening in, in, in music. I talked about this artificial human being now being able to sing and compose music, but I also see increasingly human composers and, and artists working alongside AIs to come up with more innovative pieces of music. And I loved one of the businesses you spoke about in your book about this, one that really uses AI to solve a real business problem. One of the big problems for online fashion retailers is 
returns. So they have to do free delivery. And then if the clothes don't fit the person, then they have to do free returns. And this costs them a fortune. And it basically kills their profit or any profit they would have had. And you talk about a brilliant company, Californian business, Stitch Fix, that have identified that problem and used AI to fix it. For me, Stitch Fix is a perfect example of getting the best out of humans and the best out of machines and combining this into a really successful business. So their idea is that they they have a, a subscription model. So you subscribe and then you are regularly send um, clothes. So every month you get a parcel from Stitch Fix saying here, here are your new clothes. And one of the biggest challenge is that when we buy something online, we return a lot of this stuff because it doesn't fit, because every company, every brand has slightly different measurements and styles, and some of them fit as well, and some of them don't. So what Stitch Fix has, has done is that they basically, when you sign up, you give them all your measurements, and their algorithms will then pre-select a clause that they know will fit you. So this is all pre-measured. And, and they will go beyond this. They will then also pre-select some that go with your style. So you can, you fill out the style survey, but you also give them access or you can give them access to your Instagram and Pinterest account. And it will then watch photos of you to see what you normally wear, what kind of style you have. And then those pre-selected items will be given to a human person, to a stylist, who can then create new outfits for you say okay last month you picked this pair of trousers we also know that this blouse or this jumper will go with this and then they would write a, a handwritten personal note for you and send this off to you and for me this is the perfect example of combining the the strength of ais and human and when people are, are getting worried about the future of their own jobs what I always say is that AI will hopefully augment and make our jobs better rather than replace us. Like all the previous industrial revolutions, what they've done is they've made the world a better place. They've given us better jobs. And my belief is that by using AI effectively, we can give some of the more repetitive tasks or the tasks that human beings shouldn't really be doing to machines and actually spend more time doing what humans do best and develop our skills around emotional understanding, skills around culture, creativity, adaptability, imagining a new future, making complex judgments, collaborating with others. All of these are intrinsically human skills that, that actually we need to focus on. And if we do this, we can then leverage AI to help us and become hopefully better human beings in the future. Bernard, as we wrap up, the one message I clearly heard while reading the book is to approach AI strategically. How should businesses approach it? What are the, the clear steps that they need to take first before they launch into fully fledged AI? So for me, the, the first step is looking at the existing strategy and exploring how relevant this strategy still is in this new intelligence revolution. And then um, another key tip is to actually realize that starting with AI is easier than you think. So there are now as a service solutions, I can now um, go to a lot of different companies, say, please give me the computing power in the cloud, give me the algorithms, and I can start using it. I can go to companies like Amazon, use their cloud services. They even now make their own predictive capabilities that they've developed available to anyone. So any retailer, any business can now use their forecasting tool to, to run AI to help them make predictions. And then I, I think even more important than all of this, sometimes when we think about AI, we think about the data and the technology. What I think is really important is that this has to go hand in hand with some of the cultural change that needs to happen. We need to keep people on board. We need to communicate. We need to explain what this means. We need to create more awareness within our organizations. And then we need to make sure that we guide people and and basically help them create 
better jobs in the future and and then use AI to rethink the services and products they're offering to their customers, rethink how they, they run their businesses. But that human beings basically are core to all of this because I believe that AI will augment every single business, every single job in the next five years and businesses need to have those conversations regularly. And this is why, why I wrote the book. I wanted to showcase across all industries, across lots of different use cases of how real organizations are starting to use AI today to make a real difference. And Bernard, last question is for the human. So the person who's maybe anxious about this new world, where do I fit in this world, etc. What kind of mindset should we have entering this new world? For me, the kind of mindset we need is what I, what people refer to as this growth mindset, that you actually that you are happy to learn new things, you're open to change, and you're open to experiment and, and fail. And sometimes people think, okay, this means I now have to become a, a data scientist, I need to um, learn how to program artificial intelligence robots. This couldn't be further from the truth. I think we definitely need more AI engineers and, and, and data scientists but for the vast majority of people, it will mean focusing on the human skills that that machines can't do. If I if I'm an accountant, for example, and my job is to take information from one spreadsheet and put it into another, and then calculate tax returns, this is something that AIs can do. And do you really want to do this for the rest of your life? Whereas if you talk to people about the ability to do some critical thinking, to focus on their creativity, being able to imagine something new, dream up new ideas, invent things. When I talk about understanding someone else's emotions, feeling someone else's emotions, working with each other, collaborating, the human touch, human communication, all of these are vitally important skills in the job market in the future, exactly for the reason that AIs can't do this very well yet. Fantastic way to finish today's show. Bernard, if people want to engage you for consultation for their business or to find out more about your work, your blog, your book, etc., where can they find you? They can find me at bernardmar.com, where on my website I have basically hundreds of articles and videos, but I also uh, regularly share information on Instagram, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is probably my favorite way of staying in touch with people. So if anyone wants to stay in touch or contact me, just find me on, on LinkedIn and, and connect with me there. Author of Artificial Intelligence in Practice, How 50 Successful Companies Used AI and Machine Learning to Solve Problems. Bernard Marr, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.